0: I'd invite you to take a Bible with me and turn today to Matthew, the 21st chapter. We're in Matthew again. Just a couple of things as you turn there. I should have said um, in reference to Nancy's service, we will also be live streaming that. And so uh, those of you who are online um, can take advantage of that. Also, thanks. uh, That's Noah and Carrie um, who are helping to lead worship this morning with Ryan. They there are kids, some of you know them already, but there are kids who live in California. They're kind of the prodigal children. Um, they're the ones that haven't made their way to the promised land yet. But no, I'm just kidding. there are our, our kids, and we're glad they're here. Thanks for leading us in worship today. Matthew 21, uh, verses 23 through 32 is our text for this morning. I invite you, if you're present with us and able, if you'd stand with me in honor of the Lord's Word. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. They asked, hey, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, well, I have a question for you. If you tell me the answer, I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Where did John get his authority to baptize? Did he get it from heaven or from humans? Uh, They argued among themselves. Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe in him? But we can't say from humans because we're afraid of the crowd since everyone thinks John was a prophet. So then they replied, we don't know. (laughs) Jesus also said to them, then neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things what do you think? A man had two sons. Now he came to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. No, I don't want to, he replied. But later he changed his mind and went. The father said the same thing to the other son, who replied, well, yes, sir. Uh, But he didn't go. Which one of these two did his father's will? They said, the first one. And Jesus said to them, I assure you, That tax collectors and prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you on the righteous road, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Yet even after you saw this, you didn't change your hearts and lives, and you didn't believe him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'd invite you uh, to keep your Bible open. I I want to walk through a a little bit of where we've been, but I want to show you where we're going. If you'll put something in Matthew 21, go back with me to Matthew, the 16th chapter. So much of what we're seeing here was set up back in the 16th chapter, the 13th verse. Jesus, in that moment, that famous moment where Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they respond essentially, oh, we're so glad you asked that question. All the survey monkeys are in and you are so popular. Some think you're Elijah, some think you're one of the prophets, some think you're John the Baptist, but the key question, but who do you say that I am? Peter gets the right answer. You are Messiah. Powerful, powerful word. You are the one that Israel has been expecting. You are the one that's going to deliver us. You are the, ones, the, you are the one the prophets spoke of that would come and make all things new. You are Messiah. In Matthew, Jesus responds this way, wow, bing, bing, bing. Right answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. This is great. And just in case that wasn't enough, Peter's confession and Jesus' response, then we didn't get to look at this text. But in the next chapter, chapter 17, they go up on a mountain and the voice of God the Father descends and says, yeah, this is him. The one in whom I love, listen to him. And Peter, who now has been having a great time, got the right answer earlier and now says, oh, I'm so glad I was here. We should build some cabins and just stay up here. This is such a holy spot. But Jesus says, no, come on. And so what happens then is we have seen in chapters 18 and 19, we get the fourth major block of teaching in Matthew. Uh, I thought about giving you a quiz today. It would go something like this. How many major blocks of teaching do scholars think there are in the book of Matthew? A, 2, because there's light and dark. B, 3, to represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. C, 5, as a repetition of the five laws of the to- or five books of the Torah. Or D, 12, to represent each of the 12 apostles. Or E, all of the above. And your answer would be No. C, it was a trick question. We're going to make you go back. No, C, it is C. There are five major blocks of teaching. Five major blocks of teaching. Oh, you got it right. Five, yes, I thought, yeah. Not the fifth option, but you you pass. Um, (laughs) There are five, five books of the Torah, and we get the fourth major teaching in chapters 18 and 19. And it goes, it starts like this. You are building a kingdom. And so I think what Matthew wants us to see is something like, About 160 years before the life of Jesus, a guy named Judas Maccabeus led a revolution. And he took his followers up into the mountain to train them to be good warriors to bring this revolution. Jesus has done this too. He's now taken them up to the mountains. They've gotten the right answers. They know that he is Messiah, the one who is to come. And now they ask this question, what does greatness look like in this kingdom? And for two chapters, as we've looked at, he says, here's what it looks like. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. The greatest looks like a servant, which still confuses them quite a bit. But then, if you go with me, what we get at at chapter 21 is now they are headed to the city. And much like Judas Maccabeus, who led his followers out of the mountains and swept down into Jerusalem and processed into Jerusalem, and went straight to the temple, and cleansed the temple of all the Greek idolatry that was filling the temple, and purified the temple for a time, and was proclaimed king. Matthew has this vision that here comes Jesus in chapter 21, entering into Jerusalem, and it's this awesome parade, kind of. I mean, there's donkeys involved, But it is an entry of sorts into Jerusalem, a humble one. But then Jesus in the next text goes to the temple, overthrows the money changers, establishes his authority in the temple and says, you've turned this place into a den of thieves. This is to be a house of prayer and begins to minister to people in the center of the temple for indeed the glory of God has returned to the temple and is restoring his place And then in verse 18 of chapter 21, as Jesus is leaving, they see a fig tree with no fruit. And Jesus says, oh, this is how I feel. I came to the center of my people and their life, and I found no fruit. And he curses the fig tree. Now, the text that we have begins what will take four Sundays for us. So chapters 21 and 22 are stories that we will see where Jesus is confronted by religious leaders in Jerusalem. Today, it's the chief priests and the elders of the temple. Then we're going to see he's confronted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then we're going to see he is confronted by the Sadducees. Now, this is very important. They are three denominations that don't like each other. You cannot trade memberships across those lines. For one thinks the temple is the center, one thinks the law is the center, and one wishes everybody would kind of chill out and get involved in the culture. But they are each going to confront Jesus in chapters 21 and 22, and then in chapters 23 through 25, we're going to get into the last, the fifth block of teaching before it goes to the cross. You with me? So our text, he has cleansed the temple, he has cursed the tree, And they come to him and say, hey, whoa, hey, ha, he. Who gave you authority to come in and mess up everything that's been going on? Who gave you the authority to come in and establish, who are you, carpenter from Nazareth? We certainly didn't give you permission to come in and start acting like the temple belongs to you because it clearly belongs to us. So, who gave you authority to turn everything over? And Jesus pulls, what well, in my notes I write, Jesus pulls a classic rabbinic jujitsu. It's my favorite joke of the day, but you didn't laugh because you can't see it. I spell it J E W jitsu. <laughs> he pulls some rabbinic jujitsu, right? Rather than answering the question, he pulls a kind of rabbi and says, Oh, I have a question for you. By what authority that John, who started this whole revolutionary movement a while back, who started inviting people to come and say, God is doing something new. Do you want in on it? The new creation is breaking in. Do you want, do you want to be part of it? Then you have to repent and leave all this behind. Come, enter the water, prepare for the newness that God has for us. Who gave John the authority to do that? Now, here's the problem. They recognize, well, if we say it comes from God, then he's going to ask us, then why didn't you join the revolution? Why didn't you enter in? But if we say it's from humans, all these people whose tithe we need, (laughs) who support the life of the priesthood, they think he was a prophet, and they entered into the revolution, and there they might leave our church if we say they wasn't from God. And so they say, "Well, we don't know." And then Jesus tells this parable: Their two sons, their father owns a vineyard. He says to the one son, "Go and work in my vineyard." And the first son says, "No." But then the text says, then he changed his mind and went. The other son, when asked, said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. But what's interesting in the text is it doesn't say he changed his mind. It says he said, yeah, but it seems to imply they said, yeah, because he just didn't want to get in conflict, or he just wanted to kind of appear that he was being the obedient son. He said, yes, but then he didn't go. So which son, Jesus said, is the one who fulfills the purposes and the the will of the Father? And it's an obvious answer. Well, the first one. The implication being all of these folks who have joined John and I in this revolution, you think they said no to God because their whole lives have been broken and outside and rebellious against Torah and they have fallen apart. But now they have said yes to this new thing God is doing. But you look holy, you look righteous, you act like you have said yes to God, but you are unwilling to receive and be converted to this new thing God is doing in the world. Are you with me? And so for the next four weeks, here I think is the question we are going to have to wrestle with. Why is it so hard to convert Christians? Why? Sisters and brothers in this room, why are we so hard to convert? So we went to dinner as a family last night, and I, I it was Saturday, so I was in my head. Sermon was already there, and I was very unsocial. And so I asked my, my family at dinner, I said, Hey, talk to me about moments where you feel like you have been converted now, especially as you're entering into adulthood where do you feel like are some changes, some conversions that have happened in your life? And, and they shared some really helpful things. It, it was interesting. Deb said, do you want me to share some? And I said, no. But not because there aren't conversions taking place in her life, but of the people at that table, she is the one who was raised really outside of faith. And those of you who know her story know that she she came to Christ in the wildest way. I mean, almost accidentally kind of coming into church, providentially being led, and giving her life to the Lord the first Sunday she was there. I mean, it's crazy. Her life was completely turned upside down. Now, God has continued to do some conversions in her life, but in some ways, the rest of us around the table were all the church kids. And so I was asking them, I know her conversion, She's essentially the one in the story who was saying no, but then changed her mind and said yes. And Jesus seems to think that conversion's not easy, but that conversion seems to at least be more likely than the conversions of those, of the rest of us around this table. So how have we been converted? And so I, I was thinking this week about conversions in my own life. And if you've paid attention over these last five years, I'm going to share four big ones with you today, and they're not going to surprise you at all, if you've paid attention. Some of you may be shocked, but you've been asleep for the last five years. (laughs) I'll be nice. But if you haven't been paying attention, here they are. So sometime in my young adulthood, and the reason I share these with you, and I think of them as conversions, is not... They may have been shared with me as I was being raised in the church, and I may not have paid attention. But my sense is that they may have been talked about, but in the practices that we participated in, they did not get deep down into my heart and imagination. And here they are. The first is, when I first got to seminary, I started reading especially some Anabaptist theology and some of that kind of stuff, that invited me to begin to understand the cross, not simply as some transaction between God the Father and God the Son, but as something that we too take up as disciples. And so you'll find in my preaching a lot that I am struggling with this conversion that has happened in my life, that we as Christians are primarily called to not trust in the Old Testament language in chariots and horses, but we are called to trust in God. And we are invited then to go into the world as peacemakers risking at some sense ourselves like the early church's martyrs did to witness to the fact that God is reconciling the world and making peace. And the the more I got into that, the more I realized so often in the Old Testament, it talks about sin coupled with kind of violence and brokenness and chaos. And we are called then to be those who take up the cross and participate in God's reconciling healing work in the world. Are you with me? That's really good. Now it's messy And I have to say, when I first started doing that, I was struggling with, okay, but what does that mean for this? There's so much in the world that's still violent and broken. How do we address that? And I still am wrestling with that, but I've been converted to this view that says to be a follower of Jesus is to be a peacemaker in the world. I have been converted, and not just because of this time period, but about that same time, I started reading other stuff and started getting involved in study and thought that led me to believe this, that the church does not have a politic, but the church is a politic. Now, what I mean by that is this, that you and I are called to embody a kind of life together, but also to the world, including our enemies, a kind of life that the world just simply doesn't understand and can't be understood apart from what Jesus did in the death and resurrection. And we are called to embody that. And because then we don't have a politic, but we are a politic then it's wrong when some people say to me, Pastor, don't talk about politics, just talk about Jesus. Because I want to say, I don't know how to do that because Jesus is inviting us to be a different politic in the world. You can't do Jesus without doing politic. Do you follow that? But that also means our world tends to do politics in kind of bifurcated ways, conservatives, liberals, right, left, and so it shouldn't surprise we who are a Christ politic that some seems to fit there, some seems to fit there, and we seem to be weird and fit nowhere. And I want to say, yeah, welcome. And it's not because Jesus is doing spiritual things while the rest of us have to do earthly things. It's that we are invited to do earthly things in a way that is shaped by heavenly things. Wow, this is good preaching. And that's why some people think I'm way too conservative, some people think I'm liberal, and I want to say, yeah, because sometimes the politic of Jesus invites us to conserve things that are being lost, and sometimes the politic of Jesus invites us to liberate things that are being ca- held captive. Right? And so I don't know what you're going to do in 40 days or whatever, but, but do it as somebody shaped by the politic of Jesus. Third, I have been converted to a sense that my hopes were largely too small as a young person. For I've been shaped, I think, by a kind of theology that said, the best God can do is help us hang on for a while and then get us out of here. And the whole goal is to be somewhere else at some point. And the problem with that is much of that shaped by a view of the body that says, we actually have at least two different things and they're separate from each other. That's a whole nother conversation. But the Hebrews don't think of us as a body and a soul. They think of us as a... (laughs) We don't have a soul. If we're Jewish, we are a soul. And the hopes in the scripture are not just that Christ will take us somewhere else, but the hopes, and the more I read the scripture, the more I confess, the hopes are that Christ will descend and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And as Paul cries out, the hopes are not just for us to escape this rental of creation so that God can blow it up, but God's hopes are to redeem his people, but also to redeem all things and make the creation new. Are you with me? And that is robust and confusing and that conversion is still so hard for me to even imagine what that means. But it's a conversion I feel like is playing out in my heart. And finally this one. Listen faster. And this one I'm really struggling with. This is a relatively new conversion. It's that this text is a text That was written by people who almost their entire existence, they have dwelt on the margins and in places of captivity. And the kind of one section, right back here in 1 Samuel, where they kind of got to have power. They narrate that whole time as though, well, we didn't do very well there, did we? And so that this text is largely for people on the margins, written by people on the margins. Now, here's the problem. I am a pastor who largely has places of privilege. Not just economically, racially, my gender, the nation I belong to. I am, a, I am part of a people of privilege. So that raises this question, am I a very good reader of this thing? And when I read it, do I read it in a way that tries to defend all those things I just listed? And if that's the case, maybe, maybe every once in a while I should shh, stop talking and listen to voices who are reading and preaching this text from other social locations than mine. Are you with me? You're not as excited about that one, but that's a really important one. And I'm struggling with that. I, how do I hear that? How do I receive that? How am I converted by that? Now, why is that important? Because if we take this text seriously, you and I in this room, we are the most difficult people God has to convert. And for the next four weeks, we're going to have to wrestle with, why are we religious people so hard to convert? And not only why are we so hard to convert, why are we sometimes at our worst, even antithetical to what God is trying to do in the world. And I would suggest just three things this morning. That if we don't want to wind up on the wrong side of these texts for the next four weeks, if we don't want to wind up on the the priests and temple leaders and the Pharisees and teachers of the law and on the Sadducee side, if we don't want to wind up on that side, then there at least needs to be these two or three things that are part of our life. First of all, we need to recognize that almost all of the verbs, in the, especially in the New Testament, are what I would call continuous action verbs. I'll give you my favorite example. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, says, you used to do this. You used to belong to evil as slaves to evil. And you used to, and the verb usually is, you used to present the members of your body to wickedness. But now, Paul says, you have been put to death in baptism. So now, Paul says, present the members of your body to righteousness. But those Greek verbs, and I don't want to get too nerdy this morning, but those Greek verbs are this. They are not, you one time back about 35 years ago said, I am yours, evil. And about 15 years ago said, now I'm yours, God's. But the verb is such that he's saying this. You used to wake up. And you presented and then kept on presenting the members of your body to wickedness. There's a wonderful prayer of John Wesley in the covenant service where he says, it's as though we wake up and say, sin I'm yours, lust I'm yours, greed I'm yours, right? Like that's what we used to do. But now, Paul says, you don't do that. Now you wake up and maybe years ago you first presented the members to Christ. But here's the deal. Every day you wake up and present and keep on presenting the members of your body to righteousness. Which means this, we are a people who are not only reformed, we are continually reforming. We are not just a people who are saved, we are a people who are constantly being saved. And Nazarene folk, we are not just sanctified, we are the being sanctified and made holy people. And one of the ways we stay from getting on the other side of the line is when we, when we lose the humble teachability that Paul talked about in Philippians 2. We recognize each of us, Christ has so many more conversions to go in our hearts. And we are always ready for the next converting moment of the Spirit. And secondly, and this is a tough one, our calling is not to protect God. In fact, more often than not, if we want to be on the right side of the line, our calling is to protect people. God's fine. God will be God. God will work out his purposes in the world. But many of us were raised to be convinced, we have got to protect God. And in consequence, we have got to protect God's church which is exactly what the priests thought that day. We have got to protect this temple from crazy prophetic zealots like this guy who just showed up from Nazareth. Our calling is not to try to protect God. Our calling is to reveal God in the world. That was good, but it's kind of, that's a hard one. Thank you. And lastly, the best conversions are connected to us living as reflections of the love Je- of Jesus more than they have to do with the mental ascent. Please don't misunderstand me. Getting our theology right is important. Um, knowing what we believe is important because our, our heads are actually connected to the rest of our bodies, and so they matter. But if you get nothing else out of the text, it's this. Don't say yes with your head and no with your body. One of the things I do love about our tradition as I've been getting to teach the history of the Church of Nazarene this semester, one of the things I love about us is there were a lot of things we just let slide or at least gave some latitude in as long as people exhibited the holy life of Jesus within them. Because we would look at them and we'd say, they're so holy. They're so messed up on baptism. But they're holy. They have some rules that I don't think we're going to live by. But they're so holy. (laughs) There were things that we would allow latitude on. Why? Because we knew That having our unity in our heads is great. But as Paul again says in Philippians 2, if there's any unity in the Spirit, any unity in love. And so let me say to you on my conversions, I sneak them into sermons all the time. I am so trying to convert you. But you know what? If you can't go there with me, that's fine. If we cannot agree in our heads about those things, that is fine as long as this as long as you recognize we are called to make reconciliation in the world. And as long as you know that we are uniquely Christ people in a, very, in a world that's trying to squeeze us into a whole bunch of different molds. And you don't have to agree with me. As long as you recognize we are called to be dominioners of the creation. And that's a part of our calling. And we don't have to agree on all the details As long as we recognize that the God who hears the cries of those who no one else hears wants the ears of his people to be attuned to those cries also. Some of you know that I uh, years ago wrote a little book on Revelation 2 and 3 on the seven letters in Revelation. I think I've said this to you before but when I think about that work The church that probably impacted me most, and probably the one we're all most familiar with, is the last one. It's the church in Laodicea. Do you remember this letter? Jesus writes to the church and says, Listen, man, you irritate me. (sighs) Um, I wish that you were either hot or cold. I don't know if this happens to you, but you know when you're at your desk in the morning or whenever reading and you've had a cup of coffee for a little while? And you grab it, and you hope it's still hot, but it's not. But you think it might be, and you drink it, and you go, ah, ah. and you think, man, if that were iced coffee, it'd be okay. And if it were hot, it'd be wonderful, but right now, it's just disgusting. <laughs> and you go to the microwave. And Jesus says, man, I wish, you would, I wish you were one of those, but you're just kind of lukewarm. And so I just want to, <laughs> you But here's the verse. It's Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and hears my voice, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I've said this to you before, but it's probably in at least the top ten most well-known evangelism verses in the Scripture. I've heard at least a dozen sermons over my life talking about the picture, the famous kind of Picture painting of Jesus standing at the door and knocking Revelation 3.20. And, and if you remember on the painting, there's no door handle on the outside. That was always my favorite part of the sermon. There's no door handle on the outside. There's only one on the inside. Will you open, your, open the door to Jesus tonight? We're going to sing five verses of Just As I Am. come on. Yeah. I always came. Um, all of that's good and fine. I don't have any problem with all that. But it struck me when I was doing the work that that verse that we think about written to outsiders as an invitation to finally open the door to Jesus is actually a letter written to a church where Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, it's nice that you get together. It'd be wonderful if you let me in. In fact, probably the fact that you're lukewarm has a lot to do with the fact that you're gathering and I'm not actually in the midst of it. You're doing religious things and other kinds of things, but you have not invited me to come and eat at the table and be the source of transformation and conversion and the very source of your life, bread and cup, meant for your nourishment in the world. And if you'll just open that door, I'll come in. And when you read it, you have to think, why wouldn't the church in Laodicea open the door to Jesus? That's so dumb. His name's on the building. Why would we not let Jesus in? And the only answer I can come up with is this. Because if you let Jesus in the temple, he's going to turn everything upside down. And if we let Jesus into this worship, he is going to try to convert us Christians to something. <laughs> he is going to try to turn us over and call us out on our religiosity. And call us out on our materialism with Jesus' name on it. And call us out on the ways that we have been co-opted by other forces in the world and not by Christ alone. And if we let him in, he's going to mess it up. Thanks be to God. (laughs) For he is the one who has the authority to come in and make all things new. And may it begin with us the people called by his name. God, help us today. Give us the courage to let you convert us. Give us the courage and the humility to recognize that there is so much you still have to do in our hearts and lives. I pray you'd give us a spirit of discernment to test what we hear and what we receive even from me God give me a discerning heart but even give those who hear a discerning heart to recognize what is from you and what is just me talking for what we want is we do not want to have church without you present and we do not want to be a people who say yes with our heads and then refuse to actually enter in to the new creation. And so help us. Thank you. Um, Thank you for those wild folk for whom you have brought them into new life and they become prophetic voices to we religious types. Because you have brought them from death to life. You have brought them from brokenness to freedom. You have brought them from darkness to light. May we hear their voices. May we we recognize that we too still need your overturning. And so fill this place with your glory today. Come on in. Work on the tables that need to be turned over. Work on our hearts that need to be turned upside down. Take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Give us a new spirit. Teach us to be on the right side of these texts these next few weeks. For we don't really want to be religious. We want to be reflections of Jesus. And so make us that today, we pray. For it's in his name that we pray. And God's people said, amen.